I'm Zach D'Amico. I'm Carson Cook. And welcome to The New Auteurs, the podcast where we take the critical framework from the golden era of cinema and apply it to today's films and filmmakers. On each episode of The New Auteurs, we'll go deep on one director, writer, actor, or other filmmaker using a singular film as a case study in an attempt to understand their screen essence. And today we are finally diving into the filmography of the man in Hollywood's hottest seat, director Christopher Nolan. We're going to do that through the lens of his 2006 masterpiece in magic, The Prestige. And joining us today to chat about The Prestige and Chris Nolan is rough cut writer and podcast extraordinaire, Ben Netto. How's it going, Ben? It's going pretty good. Mid-July and summer has finally arrived in Seattle, so... (laughs) Hard to complain after all this waiting I've done, but very kind of you to call me a podcast extraordinaire. First time that yeah. label's ever been given to me, so thank you. Yeah, well, we're happy to happy to have you here. Uh, I think we're going to start off with, as as has become our custom, uh, our our personal backgrounds with with Mr. Nolan. So, Zach, what was uh, what was the first Nolan movie you saw? So first of all, I'm literally just realizing this right now, but we are recording this, I think, two days after Tenet was originally supposed to be released. I've lost track of how many release dates it's had, but I think <laughs> 717 was supposed to be the sort mm-hmm. of clever pound, pound-dramic original release. But So my, my first film with Nolan was Batman Begins, and I saw it when it came out. So basically, like I didn't see Memento or Insomnia when they first came out. I got to those later, but I saw Batman Begins. And at the time, not knowing anything about Nolan, I don't think I saw all of, I I didn't see this as some revolutionary superhero movie. I saw it as like, oh, this is a good and slightly darker superhero movie than the ones I'm used to seeing. Like it's, you know, amongst the highest quality superhero movies I've seen, it's, I saw it as like on a similar echelon to, you know, Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi version, but it was a lot darker. No, having seen his whole filmography now, I see like a lot of his like right the the narrative structure that he plays with so often and like some of the themes. But I didn't really get that at the time. And then after Batman Begins, like thinking back on it, from when I from my freshman year of high school to freshman year of college, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, and Inception came out, and those were just like those were like fodder for a teenage boy in high school and college like they were just like they were big and they were cool and they were like about you know complex heroes and anti-heroes and yeah it was very similar for me i uh, batman begins was the first one i saw and then after that i pretty much saw each subsequent nolan film as it came out caught up with his first three later you mentioned that these films being fodder for a teenage boy you know during that that stretch the dark knight is really the movie that I think, if I really had to kind of pinpoint it, would be the movie that kickstarted my love of film in kind of the version it is today. I, I watched a lot of movies when I was young, and my parents were both very into into film. And I watched movies, and I liked movies, and you know, but I really gravitated towards the you know the the big action movies and the broad comedies and all of that. The Dark Knight is really the first movie I remember going and seeing in a theater and walking out and being like, oh, okay, this is something different than what I'm used to. This is more than I expected. I think I went back and saw it the next day and you know, I was very disappointed that it didn't make it into the Oscar race. And I think the next year was the, the next year 
2009 was when I finally decided, okay, I'm going to now watch all, all the movies. I'm going to see all the Oscar nominees and I'm going to really get into that. So I know what's, what's going on in, in this world of film. So it has kind of a special place for me. Yeah, that is very high praise. Like the movie that began, began your blossoming love for movies. That's incredible. The fact that you can pinpoint that is kind of incredible. (laughs) I, I, I don't, I, well, I would probably say the matrix maybe for me, but regardless, mm-hmm. I'm like kind of in the same area as you guys. Cause like 2005 or six or whenever Batman begins came out was kind of early to see any movies that your parents weren't also watching. So yeah, I, it, it would have to be memento or Batman begins like sitting at home on the couch with my family. But as you guys both know, I'm a little bit of a, a Batman hater, not a Nolan <laughs> Batman hater, but as a comic book character. So I think I would probably lean towards Memento, especially because Carrie Ann Moss was in it. That was probably the first one that I saw. And it's such a neat movie and one that I used to consider a favorite Nolan movie of mine. So do Nolan Batman movies like sort of do they undermine what you don't like about him as a comic character and make you like, like the movies almost more? Or is it sort of like, oh, I like what he did with it more than I like other iterations of the comic book and the movies, but it's still Batman. So I still am never going to like be full on in love with it. Oh man. Loaded question. I think, I think you're right. <laughs> I did. I did rewatch Batman Begins a couple weeks ago. They're such exceptionally well-made movies that even if you don't like what's really at the heart of the character like i don't we've argued about this a lot i kind of think batman is just a spoiled rich kid who has unlimited resources to do whatever he wants he does good so you so you loved joker then you loved (laughs) that you know i think i've been boxed into that corner (laughs) (laughs) and you're right i am the biggest joker fan i know but um it's hard looking back to not give the Batman movies the respect that it deserves because they're, even though they are superhero movies and especially rewatching them after the whole MCU takeover, you see how like thoughtful and entertaining and, and dark they are versus these like washed out versions that just like recycle plots and all that. So even though I'm not a huge Batman fan watching them, now I have a lot more respect for them than I did then just just because you can tell that it's a movie made with a lot of love. It's it's really fascinating to me that like you make a good point that the, the MCU movies had not come out. I think Iron Man came out in 2008, the same year. It was the same the, Dark Knight. the same year. Yeah. But but that's 3 years after Batman Begins. And Batman Begins made a ton of money and was like a critical success and then obviously The Dark Knight was huge. And it's fascinating to me that the MCU saw that, saw like oh, this is what happens when you like let a filmmaker pursue his own vision and do, do something a bit darker and something completely different. And then they were like, nah, we're going we're gonna to keep things very light for the next 23 movies for the most part. Like they, they did not, they were not like, oh, this, I mean, normally Hollywood is like, oh, something broke the mold and made a ton of money. Let's all do it now. And let's like beat it until it's a dead horse and then keep doing it for another 10 years. But they were not, they were like, oh no, we're, we're not going to do that. And that's like, I, I'm curious how that decision happened. I mean, there's still, what's interesting about them is you, it's, it's interesting to go back and watch and, and even just think about that first Iron Man movie, which does 
you know, it's, it's jokier and, and all of that, but it feels much more in line with kind of that early wave of, uh, of superhero movies, the, the Spider-Man movies, the X-Men movies, um, and, and isn't quite what we think of now with the, the really, you know, processed MCU. Um, it, it, cause at that point they didn't know they were going to be able to do this. They were putting all their chips on Iron Man with, you know, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, being, being what brought Marvel back. Um, and, uh, and yeah, but then the two, the two paths clearly diverged, uh, which is, which yeah. is fascinating to think about. Yeah. And I guess they also didn't have like the built-in audience of Batman and like, uh, uh, right. Decades of history of how it's been done to like do something like Nolan did it. It was more like, I mean, I remember going to see Iron Man with my parents and I didn't, I had no interest in it. And I was like kind of annoyed and we, we went to see it and I walked out of it pleasantly surprised. Right. It was like, I wasn't a huge fan of comic books at that time, nor superhero movies. And I didn't know who Iron Man was or I didn't know much. And so I was like, why, like, why do I care about this? And then it was like funny. And for someone who doesn't know who Iron Man is, who is into comic books, you could like that movie, which is essentially their, like, right, that was their MO. It was like, look, we know there's a built-in fan base for comic book movies, but we want to, like, we want to expand far beyond that. We want a global phenomenon. And to do that, you have to appeal to people who don't come to this movie just because they love comic book characters. Yeah, that is, I mean, that is kind of the, the key to Batman. And I think why... Nolan and even why Burton before him to a certain extent Batman you're able to do that because people know who Batman is even if you don't read comics or even really watch these movies that often you could get like the gist of Batman you'd be like okay he's a rich guy dead parents dresses up like a bat and that's kind of all you don't forget spoiled to know, yes, as, as Ben said. Um, but that's that's the context, that's all the context you need, which I think allows a filmmaker uniquely to come in and play with that character. And as, as Nolan does, especially in The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, kind of not even have Batman on screen that much, which is unusual. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, I got a question, especially since Ben has, you know, a little bit of an aversion to Batman and Carson, who like apparently Batman was literally the creator of his cinematic <laughs> obsession. So knowing what we know right now today, imagine we're 30 years from now and everyone knows Christopher Nolan for one movie. Like every, it's like, that's, that, that is the Nolan movie that everyone knows and associates with him. Just one short answer of what you think the movie would be. What is it? Inception. I also think it's Inception. Just to be I, devil's I, advocate, I'm going to go with Tenet. Oh. <laughs> because of no because of everything happening right now he's literally the only filmmaker in the news right now and he's in the news constantly and like sure. this is the movie that's gonna save hollywood and reopen it so that's like I, that's the only way i think he can outdo his repute like his the association people have with him in inception with how big it was and how like it was just like a caricature of a christopher nolan movie but i think like if you tap into the zeitgeist of like what is a major event that will be remembered for decades that that's how you could top that a lot of what, disrespect it's... for live action Mulan, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, purposeful disrespect. <laughs> what if Tenet is bad though? That's a stupid idea. And then what? Then that's what? I mean, I mean, <laughs> that's the question, right? No like, response. I mean, if it's not, if it's not good, I mean, a little bit. 
if Tenet is bad, then 100 million people will have risked their lives to go see a shitty movie. So it'll be even more, it'll be the disgrace and downfall of a once phenomenal <laughs> filmmaker. It'll be like Elliot Kazan testifying before the House on the Committee on Un-American Activities and like throwing his fellow filmmakers under the bus. It ruined a budding career. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but... <laughs> yeah, maybe, but, uh, but maybe not too far off. Okay, but, but you, both think, you both think it's Inception. I think Inception is what we'll get into this. I think the film that like defines him or explains him the best is the prestige. But I think the most Nolan film is Inception for better or for worse. Yeah, I think I agree. But also at the same time, you could easily make an argument for any of them and compel me pretty easily, to be honest. Like I'm, I'm surprised that neither of you said Dark Knight just for cultural impact. I know Inception personally came at a time for me right before I was going to college. So you implicitly have a lot of like bias in your memory of remembering what you were doing and, and those things and how they impacted you versus, you know, my personal relationship with Batman and why I wouldn't put Dark Knight up there. But like, I, I didn't see prestige until last night, but you could make an argument for that one too. So Mm -hmm. I will be interested to hear all of, all of this discourse. Inception, this is another one where the the thing about Inception is just from my own experience. I know my, my parents, like I said, they're, they're big movie buffs. They went and saw Inception, I think right when like Friday, Friday night. And I, for whatever reason, didn't go see it that night. And I remember them, I was home, I was at home and, and they came home. They're like, this movie is incredible. When are you going to see it? And I was like, oh, probably, probably tomorrow. And they're like, okay, uh, tomorrow morning, we'll buy tickets. We'll go with you again. Um, <laughs> yeah. We want to we see this, this movie again. And to be fair, I did that with all my friends with The Hangover. So it's not exactly a barometer. <laughs> for... That still sounds like such a blessing, though. I do know that like Inception is a movie that my mom can put on Netflix and my dad will be able to stay awake through so that's also a very good it's crucial bar of approachability but i like i've never had my parents be like oh we got to go see this movie we saw it before you so i mean to for inception to be that movie too that's just phenomenal it even had like the tr- that's one of the fr- now this may have to do just with like my age and that inception similarly came like right around like late high school or a co- i guess i was it was freshman year uh, yeah. or sophomore year but but that's one of the first movies that I have a vivid memory of the trailer having a life cycle. Like, mm-hmm. because the trailers kept so much information back and like, there was so much conversation. It was all, that also came like, like the internet was like Twitter. Like, I, I think I first got a Twitter account in 2010. So that also, also just like the timing may have been perfect for like capturing the online conversation around something that is like mostly meaningless, but like somehow inspires like tens of thousands of words about a two minute clip but like that's the first movie that i i have a memory of that level of conversation around a trailer i i think you're right about the trailers and that that trailers i recall is the trailer that kind of sparked like future trailers right everyone worked off the inception model and it had the 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 bomb that that really kept showing up places even though in context it doesn't make a ton of sense other than in that movie because it's so tied to the score but but i think yeah i think the footprint of inception is just such that it uh even all the way through to the trailer it 
it, it paved the way for a lot of things that it's not maybe as blatant as the Dark Knight because there isn't the the comic book genre attached to it, but uh, but I think in its own way is the one that's going to be perhaps remembered most closely tied to him. That was the same year as the Social Network trailer, right? Which mm-hmm. birthed a million sad emo versions of pop songs yes. in trailers. Good yes. lord. Uh, so jumping into Nolan's history a little bit, um, you know, he hit, I don't want to say he necessarily hit fame very quickly, but so he wanted to be a filmmaker from a very, very young age. And he, so he went to University College London and did not major in filmmaking because his theory, although this, this may be like some, some hindsight is twenty twenty, but his theory supposedly was that you learn more things, you get a more interesting perspective if you're not just focused on filmmaking. But he was president of the Union's Film Society and in almost like every future filmmaker's dream, he met his girlfriend and future wife and producer Emma Thomas at university and the two of them screened 35 millimeter feature films during the school year for the Film Society and... and, and the other students and then coming out he started to work on like he started to work as a grip a camera operator he really did sort of start kind of from the bottom and just jumped into production and he made a couple shorts and he has been not critical but a bit outspoken in that he felt that the British film world was relatively clubby and that is a very limited amount of funds for films in Britain. And if you weren't part of the club, you know, he, he certainly struggled, I guess, to get any sort of traction. His first two or three films, a couple of them played festivals. He like kind of got notoriety from them while he was at school, but they, they're actually unavailable. You can't even watch them now. So the, the first short that is still available is called Doodlebug, which is from 1997. And then the following year over after making his feature debut following uh, over the course of like 50 weekends, basically, with barely more than $3,000, with mostly friends and family. So he released that, it got a ton of attention, and then he got the money to make Memento. And what I think is really interesting is Memento came out, you know, 20 years ago, it was his second feature, and he was nominated for an Oscar for original screenplay. And since then, in 20 years, and he has gone on to make, you know, nearly a dozen movies that have been all critically and commercially acclaimed and he has only been nominated for a couple more oscars he's gotten another screenplay nod he's gotten a a best picture nod because he was a producer on inception and then he finally got his best director nomination for dunkirk and that's it Uh, after getting so much attention early in his career to sort of to swing and a miss so many times with with the academy is especially with like movies that are for all intents and purposes, certainly not movies that the Academy is historically averse to. Like they're, they're very popular, they're very big, they're very showy, yet he still hasn't gotten that attention. Although he has, I mean, I mean, the thing is he has worked in what we'd, we'd think of as, as genre work, which, which is part of the problem, I assume. I mean, you have um, things like Insomnia and The Prestige, which are, are smaller, smaller kind of grittier movies. Those you know, I mean, sometimes they'll sneak in, but but often not into the the best picture, or best director categories. And then you know, he's made three Batman's and Interstellar, which you know I think people were a little bit mixed on. And and it's not, you know, it is surprising in some ways that The Dark Knight didn't get more awards buzz. I think people really thought it it would. Um, and obviously, that kind of led to them going from five nominees to 10 nominees between 08 and 09. But, but, but in some ways it does make, it makes sense because he makes the movies that he wants to make. 
and they don't always comport with what what I think the Academy often wants to see. Ben, do you think he should have an Oscar by this point? Yeah, I think I think given the state of the industry and how, you know, you mentioned he's got this almost unbeatable win streak. He puts out these blockbusters with big stars that are well-made and creative. And it, it seems like that's the kind of person the Academy would like to reward, even if it is a little more genre specific. But if he doesn't get one soon, it feels like we'll be talking about him the same way we talked about Leonardo DiCaprio for a long time. And like, once it's so overdue, it becomes its own thing that kind of right. envelops the Oscars itself. But yeah, yeah. And he's also like, he's also so vocal about like shooting on film and, you know, not using visual effects and like doing everything the right way. He's sort of old school in a way that you'd think the Academy would appreciate. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, in some ways it just, it probably just comes down to, to timing. I mean, I guess what, uh, I'm curious, what do you guys think? If we think that maybe he he should have had an Oscar, let's say a picture or a directing Oscar, or uh, or screenplay, or, or a screenplay, sure. Uh, which I mean, what do you, where do you think that you know? Where, a where do you think that should have come, and B where do you think he came closest? Like, do we do we think he was close at any point? I don't think he was. I think maybe he was close with Dunkirk. Maybe if you had had like a picture director split, because Guillermo del Toro beat him for directing The Shape of Water. And that was the year The Shape of Water also won picture, which is one of the very few years in recent memory, you know, Parasite being the other, where both picture and director have gone to the same movie. So I think that was pretty surprising. The Shape of Water didn't necessarily dominate that year, yet somehow won both those awards. I think largely on the fact that Guillermo del Toro also was seen as almost long overdue and he had a lot of goodwill amongst Academy voters. But, but my concern there is like Paul Thomas Anderson was also nominated for Phantom Thread and he also has never won an Oscar after making films for 25 years. So how close really was Nolan that year? I don't, I, I, I'm honestly not sure. Yeah. I, I tend to think, I agree with you that I think that's maybe where he was, he was closest, at least in terms of, you know, a directing win or maybe even a picture win i i had pretty much convinced myself that either because of the way the the voting works now and the you know the runoff voting that either dunkirk or get out was going to be able to rise to the top and win and i i was positive that one of those two was gonna gonna make the upset i think that was really just wishful thinking on That's on tough. my part but um but yeah, but I think, I mean, you're, you're right there. And obviously Jordan Peele was in that, that conversation too. Yeah, I think Inception has this distinction of being such an approachable, lovable blockbuster that really has something for everybody, which I, I think Nolan in general does really well. Um, and I don't think you could even really put Dark Knight in that conversation because even as more universally accepted superhero movies are now they still don't get nominated for big awards very often and and dark knight as we talked about preceded all of that so i don't think you can really include dark knight in in coming close category unfortunately so if not dunkirk it would probably have to be inception yeah all right so carson what what would your one sentence summary be of christopher nolan's style so i would say 
as we've talked about a little bit, he's, he is a director who believes in the power of film as, you know, as entertainment, just talking about film in general, also as film, the practical, physical artifact. Uh, and he thinks that movies should be seen on the biggest possible screen. But, but the thing I think with him is he puts his money where his mouth is and he commits to filling the screen, no matter what screen it is, with the biggest visuals possible. And then he attempts to match those visuals with big concepts. For him, it's not just enough to make a war movie. His war movie has to be three interlocking temporalities that are all occurring at a different rate and speed. You have something like The Dark Knight Rises, which is, which is a movie that, for a comic book movie, is utterly insane and just all over the place. I think that is, that is what separates him is that he wants the ideas to match the, the vastness of the screen. Yeah. I think I'm like almost in the same ballpark, but I will try to just do one sentence and say stylish, introspective blockbusters for everybody. And for everybody is such a, is such a good point. That's such like a, a key thing that, is like a very succinct way of getting at his, you put it as approachability earlier too. And I think that is like, people talk about how the fact that like just saying he makes blockbusters gets at that a little bit, but it's not just about that. Like he, right. It's right. It's we'll get into this, but it's that quote from the end of the prestige where Hugh Jackman's character basically says like, this wasn't all for nothing. I, I gave people something. I made them shocked. I gave them shock and awe. And like, that's all that matters. And like, that's exactly like what you were saying, right? He, he does this for everybody. He wants to give the most people the best experience. My, my, I'll give my one sentence, which is that I think he wants to make you feel alive while at the same time making you question what that actually means, which I think is sort of similar to Carson's point about like he tries to marry the visuals and the huge big images with also the huge big ideas. And he, he doesn't want to just he could do right? he could do a fast and the furious movie he could come up with a stunt that has somehow never been done in nine ten whatever eight of those movies and it would be unbelievable but he also would demand creative control over the script to make sure he like smuggled in a bunch of ideas about existence and time and memory and loss and love uh, and family of course because it's a fast and the furious movie <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big thing with the prestige because it is just this big stylish period piece that at the end of the day, if you walked out of that theater and you were like, oh, that was a really good movie about rival magicians and ended it there, that would be like perfectly acceptable. But if you wanted to get into the themes and concepts and obsession in time, like there's so much for you to rewatch and find and, and find these little things that, like if you're just a typical movie goer and there's nothing wrong with that, perfect. You're still going to love his movies. But if you want to dive deep, like he's got everything for you too. And I yeah, can't I think... think of a lot of other, anybody else that really does that, especially with like the list of movies that he's made successfully, including both groups of people. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's totally right. And I, I agree your, your point about these things being, being for a lot of people. Um, and, and I think it's unfortunate in some ways that is undermined by this smaller group of people, the, the Nolan bros who have, you know, th there is an association there with the people who kind of think he, he can't, he can't do anything wrong and you can't criticize him and, and, and things like that, which is, uh, you know, I, I think filters over to him, which is really unfortunate because I think he is at the end of the day trying to make 
big budget entertainment for a really wide audience. But but you, you talked about the procedure already, Ben, and this was your first time seeing it. What what'd you think generally? I mean, how, how'd you react? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty offensive as me uh, for me as like a a movie watcher like the genre and the the twists and the little clues like i've known for a long time that this would be a movie that i like i think it's a little ironic that i didn't watch it until i owned two different dvd copies of it because <laughs> I, I where did I've you had, get them the the first one honestly just showed up on my shelf i have no recollection of buying it at any point we all have movies like that yeah and then the second one I got in, you know, that I was telling you, I bought that box set of used Nolan DVDs. So now I have two copies of Inception and two copies of The Prestige, but I've seen Inception, you know, 10 times, probably one of my most rewatched movies ever, but didn't get to The Prestige until last night. And it's, it's too bad because it really is a movie with a whole lot of heart and trickery. It's a sentimental movie that also wants to to screw with your mind. And there aren't many other movies that do that. So, And it's hard to believe that Hugh Jackman would have grown into being P.T. Barnum in <laughs> the greatest musical of the last decade had he not, you know, played a similar showman type role. An excellent in the point. <laughs> and it's it's great. I, I remember when we did the mailbag, and we asked everyone their top three Nolan movies and I couldn't put the prestige in my top three because I had not seen it. I think if you re-asked that question to me now, it would be very hard because it, it wants to be right up there at one or two. And it's a great movie and I have already made plans to rewatch it again. Yeah. I can't believe I never thought about the fact that not only do we have Nolan to thank for some of our greatest blockbusters, but we have him to thank for our greatest musical blockbuster. <laughs> not even close. Stuff. Yeah, no, I, I also, it's interesting that you say that you're going to rewatch it soon because I, I do think like all of his movies are eminently rewatchable. And like when I sat down, so I hadn't seen The Prestige since it first came out. And when I sat down to rewatch it, I wanted to rewatch it because I had forgotten some of the details about how the trickery worked and I was excited to like be a little bit surprised, but also look for some of the clues that I knew were leading to the ultimate end, right? I remembered enough to be able to see those clues along the way, which is why rewatching his movies is so rewarding in like in just the plot mechanics. But also I found myself, right? I wanted to rewatch it because I was excited about that. But then I found myself, now that I knew some of the mechanics, I was able to pay attention to more to some of the deeper stuff, the, the themes of obsession. And, you know, I saw this, this was the second Nolan movie I'd seen. So having seen his whole filmography, I noticed a lot of similarities around love and loss and grief, grief driven obsession and sort of man creating his own tragic end. Yeah, this, this is... For a long time, this was my favorite, my favorite Nolan, and it's still right up there. It's probably my second favorite after after Interstellar, but I've seen I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times, a lot of times, and I've owned multiple versions of it. Honestly, it's very possible that I sent you that DVD. It's with you too in owning multiple um, <laughs> versions of this movie. It is. Well, I have a DVD, and then I bought the Blu-ray, and so it's very possible that that Ben yeah, has it my DVD. Have been you. Yeah. Um, but, Wait, briefly, briefly, Ben, which version did you watch? The one you owned first or the one you just got? The one I just got. 
Oh, come on. That poor other <laughs> DVD that's been sitting on your I shelf know. waiting to be watched. I know. It's, it's like says, the toy who sees the new toy arrived and just like has to watch it get, get put into the DVD player. It says right on the case, like the, the pull quote is, you're going to want to rewatch it right after. And it, it sucks that I didn't get to it for so many years and I did go for the new copy over the old one. So it hasn't even been rewatched yet and it wasn't even the old copy. So you're uh, right. That is honestly sad. And it, it might have been you, Carson. You've sent me a handful of movies over the last year. So I, we can't, just, I can't keep track. We can just credit to you. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, it's a movie, like, like you said, it is, all his movies are, are very rewatchable. And, and part of that is just, they are the, the sheer entertainment value. But this movie in particular, there's a lot of kind of movie magic to it. And, and obviously, I mean, for, for listeners, if you haven't seen The Prestige in the past, you know, whatever, 15 years, we're going to talk about it. But the thing that gets me every time is the makeup work they do on Christian Bale, because I know that he's playing, you know, both Bordens and he's playing himself, you know, whichever one of them is Borden at the time, whichever one is Fallon. And... It, you know, if you're looking for it, maybe, but even when I'm looking for it, it doesn't really look like him. And it clearly is. And you know, it is. And you try kinda... to picture like, okay, I'm, I'm looking past the beard. If I look past the beard, does it look like him? And it doesn't like completely. Yeah. And it should, and, and it should tip you off. Like even seeing, and maybe this is just, I, I was younger when I saw it, but I had no, I had no idea, even though just movie logic you know, indicates, okay, there's this mysterious guy who's always around who isn't really recognizable for very specific reasons that feels intentional. But I never, I mean, the movie carries you along. I never thought about it when I first saw it. And well, that's the thing about Nolan movies, right? Is that like, they, they all carry you along so quickly that you don't, it's like, if you had an intermit, right? If this was the 90s or the 80s and you had an intermission, you might be able to figure out like a lot of the twists and turns because they all like once you find them out they almost feel inevitable but his movies are so propulsive that you don't really have time to stop and think in the theater otherwise you'll miss some other like trick that just happened it is a thing i mean that that comes up with something like inception too which is why i think about uh, a lot i have seen inception again a, i don't know how many times a million times and I don't understand Inception. I don't understand what is going on at any given moment with the different time stuff. I, I've just never been able to, to really understand it, but I kind of don't care. Like, it doesn't matter. It's enough that like, okay, they're in one time here and it time goes slower down here, whatever. That, that's all I need. Well, it's like, Ben, you had like a major plot hole concern with the prestige, right? With the, like, uh, the... Oh, yeah. I, this was, it was just cracking <laughs> me up and I, uh, you know, these are these big up-and-coming magicians who are sworn enemies with each other. And it, it is funny to me that they can't pick each other's faces out of a crowd. Like, how often they just, like, frequently get called up stage as, as a participant. And then, oh, no, <laughs> it's he's, actually, he's actually put a real bullet in the gun. And, and just, like, oh, like... It must have happened three or four times in the procedure. It it's like, oh no, this is Christian the Bale. The same trick over and over. <laughs> yeah. the, the thing that always makes me laugh about that is because the only way that that makes sense to me, and it's way funnier if this is what's happening, is the, the times when they get pulled up to be the volunteer, 
it must mean that they've each gone to each other's show like a hundred times and this happened. We're just seeing the time mm. that they get <laughs> okay. pulled up, but they just <laughs> okay. keep going and raising their hand and then yeah. like not getting pulled uh, up. <laughs> maybe Tuesday. <laughs> it's really like, just pick a woman to come up at this point. Like he picks <laughs> Christian Bale to come up and he screws up like the bird crushing trick. And that's the second time it's happened to him. It's like, pick, just pick someone to- <laughs> killing me. But it's, you're absolutely right. When you brought that up, I was like, oh my God, you're totally right. That's hilarious. But in the moment, like in the movie, I didn't care. If I noticed it, I didn't care. I was like, oh, whatever. I don't care. Well, yeah. And it, I, it's not something that ruins my like of the movie at all. It's just you, as magicians, these guys have such an incredible attention to detail, especially during their act, that it's at least plausible that they're not like thinking at all about the people that they're picking up. But once you get burned on that once and (laughs) lose your fingers or lose your wife you know like that might be something you're more attuned to but okay we have to talk about this i think what is with the dead wives there's so many of them i so here's the thing is like they're almost always plot devices which makes it both better and worse to me Mm -hmm. like it makes it better in the sense that he doesn't have some weird fetish with widowers and killing off wives and doesn't just like do it for no reason but it also makes it worse because it's like he needs something that creates a grief that drives like right this happens in memento happens in the prestige happens in inception where like this sort of grief and obsession with uh doing something to like either recover your wife or her spirit or avenge her spirit or whatever it is drives the the main character but it's like, dude, come up with, there's a lot of ways that you could create that <laughs> obsession. Come up with another one. Let your women live. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it doesn't play super, super well, especially when you notice the, the pattern. It does, I mean, like, I think like the best interpretation of it, he seems to be very like happily married in a, in a, in a partnership that is both a like professional partnership and a personal partnership. And, you know, maybe for him, that's just like the worst thing he can imagine is, you know, his wife not not being there because all the protagonists in Christopher Nolan movies are basically Christopher Nolan stand-ins, it, it feels like. So um, maybe for him, that's just the, they, that's his little tribute to, to his own wife that, you know, he would be obsessed and stricken with grief if she died. His tribute to his own wife is don't <laughs> let her be in any of the movies because she's dead. All right, it was, a, listen, it was a stretch, but I, I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out. Maybe this is putting you guys on the spot a little bit, but is Scarlett Johansson the woman with like the most agency in a Christopher Nolan movie? Like she actually like gets to do her own thing. She takes herself out. She puts herself in. She leaves entirely before she gets killed. But I mean, are there like I can't think of many other examples where they aren't plot devices. I, I guess Ellen Page in yeah. Inception. I think it's, I think Hathaway in both The Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar are like maybe the, the two the I think two that's that I gravitate those are good towards. What I do think I love a lot about The Prestige, having just watched it, is that like the, the story is big, but the stakes are not really. Like if you boil it down, really, it's just like these two arrogant magicians who care a lot about one upping each other. And it's not this like save the city like Batman or win the war like Dunkirk or even like save the planet like Interstellar. It's just like this really small scale moment in history. And I feel like 
I learned a lot more about the characters and the prestige than I do a lot of them in, in other movies because, you know, you get to see their love lives, like what drives them, what, what tortures them. And I, I feel like you see a lot of like big highlights with characters, but it's nice to just have these two central characters to focus on in this one world and not be going into space or going into you know the batmobile or whatever so it's it's something that i i really loved about the prestige that's a real that's a really good point that i've never thought of is the fact that and it sort of tracks with this idea that the prestige is like a metaphor for filmmaking now obviously like a lot of his movies are but you talk like he talks about the the magic trick consisting of three parts the pledge in which the magician shows you something ordinary the turn in which they take that ordinary something and make it do something extraordinary and then the prestige where you bring it back you making it disappear isn't enough and he has talked about how like he wrote he wrote the screenplay with his brother to have those three pieces function as three acts but like the idea of Filmmaking is something that when you're in it, when you're in a movie, like the stakes could not be higher. It is intense. It is like high stress. And I mean, you know, money is at stake, certainly, but like it feels like your life. I mean, when artists talk about their art, it feels like everything. But at the same time, it's like it is just a movie. And for mo- most people, m- you know, movies are pretty low stakes things. Uh, but for him in that moment, it feels like everything, which is like that I had never thought about it that way, but that's totally matched by like these magicians. It's kind of like comedic if you think about it. It's yeah. ridiculous. It's a little but for silly. them, it is life and death. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. It's interesting that he hasn't. That's kind of his last small movie, at least in terms of kind of uh, the the scope of it. He had. He's only gotten bigger since. And you know, I mean, I, I love his big movies. I, I I really do. But but I do wonder when he will go back to small again or if or if he ever will um i don't don't know what you guys think do you think that he he'll return to that that kind of smaller scope of a store anytime soon are those movies money makers and that i feel like that drives a lot of the conversation yeah and i don't know like you think about some of the filmmakers that have gone bigger and bigger and bigger and then they've gone small alfonso cuaron and going from children you know he did he did a harry potter he did children of men he did gravity a big space movie then boom he went small back home something similar ish to what uh bong joon ho did like getting bigger and bigger budgets and then making an american like an english language movie and Mm -hmm. then he went back home to korea to do parasite but i don't think that either of them or some of the other examples are known for like the bigness of their movies like that is his identity is being the best like good blockbuster movie maker in the country, you know, in the world. So to go back small might be almost, he might find it difficult to like, you know, retain his identity while he goes back. I don't know. Maybe once he stops being able to figure out a way to go bigger than the last movie, he'll just have to go backwards. I I feel like that might be the type of thing that happens once he gets that well-deserved Oscar, you know? That's a good point. And Roma, I think, got robbed for best picture. But nevertheless, like this is already a director who's been rewarded before for yeah. his bigger movies, and and maybe Nolan has a little bit of uh, like if I if I quit going big now, then it's never gonna happen because you know that's 
that is the type of thing that gets rewarded most often. So I, I would expect maybe a smaller scale movie if and when he ever does get that Oscar. So who do you guys, who do you think is, gives the best performance in the prestige? I, I think Bale and Jackman are both. I mean, I get that it it's a cop out to say them both, but they're, they are perfectly cast, I think. And one of the questions I have later, and maybe we'll talk about it now is does this movie work if you switch the two of them, if Jackman plays Borden and Bale plays Angier. But, but I think they, I, if I had to pick one, I'd probably pick Jackman. Um, I think this is maybe the best work of his, of his career. Um, I think he perfectly encapsulates kind of the, you know, like we talked about the, the showman at heart harnesses his theatricality, but also lets him play grief and obsession in a way that we haven't seen, you know, quite as often. I, I think he's probably my my MVP here. Yeah, I would agree that it's Jackman just because he is the the twist at the end. I think makes you want to go back and watch Bale again. But there's something just mesmerizing about how desperate Jackman is. He's desperate to avenge his wife. He's desperate to be better than Borden and then figure out all of Borden's secrets and also come up with his own big trick. And there's just like, usually I think characters have like three or four things pulling at him and they're all desperation for Jackman, but they're like three or four different examples of desperation, which is just like, how low is it going to push him to go? And it, it really does push him all the way down to the bottom. And you can see that as, as the movie's going, you see him get more and more, there's his entire life revolves around it. And I think you feel that in a way that, maybe I didn't with Bale all the time. There, I, you, you talked about going back and watching it to watch Bale. I, I will say on a very technical, on a technical level, Bale is doing pretty incredible work because I think he is playing right. the two brothers differently, right. like very clearly differently. Um, even in the moments where it's not like the big, very obvious, um, oh, he hates his wife in this scene because it's not his wife. He is doing some pretty, pretty subtle work, I think. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, right? Most movies that like are rewarding on a rewatch, you notice like little, little kernels or nuggets of foreshadowing, but it's like in this movie, it's an entire performance that is based on a fact that we don't know until the end. So you don't understand like the performance, but it also like on, on Jackman, I think it's really interesting. Like I think Nolan's movies, I think almost every not, you know, maybe not everyone, but most people agree that they are technically sound and impressive but it almost seems like going just from good that would you know that was quality film good work cinema woo to like oh that movie really hit me that's a great movie i want to i want to you know watch it again it's one of my favorites like they live and die by whether they hit you in like your stomach and your heart because they're always technically sound but whether you have that emotional investment seems to be when people criticize nolan films other than maybe the 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 plot holes it seems to be oh it's it's a little cold it's too big i didn't feel anything but jackman carries like he carries the emotional investment in this film in part because you don't really know the details of bale's life until the end um but also in part because he he is just i mean you said it ben he's so desperate you empathize with him so much uh that like that to me is where the heart of the movie is you empathize, but you're also, or at least I found myself rooting against Jackman too. As you know, you see his wife literally die on screen, which is not a whole lot of trauma that you see for Bale. But 
by the end, you're you're just kind of you want him to let it go. He's a fine magician in his own right, but you know that like you keep pushing and you keep pushing. Ultimately, it's going to lead to to his demise, and especially because the movie starts out that way, it sets you up on that course. You wonder just exactly how Jackman is going to get to that point that the movie starts with, and and so I think I was a lot more invested because you know that it's going to lead to his death and he still can't stop himself. And, and his loss so, of humanity. I mean, he goes too, he goes too far, like pretty definitively. Um, yeah, you disgust disgusted by him. In a lot yeah. Of he, he gets in, you know, innocent, he frames an innocent man and gets him sent to, sent to the hangman's noose. Yeah. What, and that, what you said, Ben brings up an interesting question, which I, I, I was, fascinated and in love with the way that this movie used the relatively i don't want to say common but you know not infrequently used story structure in which you start at a point that is then you go backwards right you start at the end you have like the moment that would be seen as like the climax three quarters of the way through the movie and you put that at the beginning and then you like rewind all the way to the beginning and it leaves the audience wanting wondering like how does he get there what exactly led to this downfall and one thing that Prestige does is it specifically, it gives you a glimpse of it in a way that you don't actually fully understand it. So by the time you get to the end, what you thought you saw in the, in the opening moments, his death is something completely different. And I, to me, for my money, it was one of the best uses of that sort of story structure because I think it's high risk, high reward. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious if like, it sounds like it worked for you, Ben. I, I don't know, Carson, did, like, did that structure work for you? Totally. I mean, I mean, this whole this whole movie works for me. It, it really does, and I think it is, like you said, it's a very smart use of that trope. And I mean, it, it is it is part of his what completely defines him and his interest. The the way he plays with the notion of time and the fact that a film is linear and, and that he is in control. It's very it, you know, if you see a movie in Nolan's preferred format on a big screen in a theater. He is in complete control of what you see and when you see it. I mean, it's different than, you know, if you're reading a book at home, like if you wanted to, you could be in control. You could, you could skip a chapter. You could flip to the end and see what happens and, and then go back. And he, he wants to do that for you in a very specific way that I think he, you know, he, he is maybe more interested in that and that control that a filmmaker has than, than, than maybe any other, other filmmaker I've encountered. Yeah, I think the structure really works for me, too. In some ways, it feels like they're obviously very different movies, but like given the chronological order of, of Nolan in general, like he did Memento with this modest budget and it starts off the way it does with the wife dying and kind of compelling this character to move forward through time with a big twist. And, and it feels like prestige is like almost a spiritual successor in a way like, okay, now I'm big. I have this big budget. Let's kind of take that conceit again and just push it as far as possible. And Memento is also a movie that I think does well upon rewatch, just like the prestige will be for me. So I'm I'm a sucker for a creative storytelling arc, even if it is kind of a Nolan staple where you're like, oh, I know he's going to try to do something to confuse me or misdirect me. I will still eat that up every single time. 
Do you, so he's worked with a lot of the same people repeatedly. Do, do you think there's someone who is a frequent collaborator who maybe best represents what he's about as a filmmaker? I think it's probably Michael Caine for me. And, and yeah. part of it is that he's not ever the, the front and center guy in any of these movies, but whether it's Alfred or uh, Cutter or his other roles, he's kind of there to be like the moral barometer because we talk yes. about these things that are, are driving people into madness a lot of times. And he's there to be like, yo, maybe you should pull back. And of course they never listen, but he's always there to be like the guidance for the main character until it's too much. And yeah. I, I feel like that is a big point of emphasis in all of Nolan's movies. So, yeah, I think we, we've talked about, I mean, in this, in this movie in particular, we, we've talked about it already, but um, I, I think Jackman is maybe the, the single character that, that I think maybe you see Christopher Nolan in. I think there's an argument for, for Cobb and Inception. I see that because it's that, that movie very much feels like, you know, there's the filmmaking metaphor and, and things like that. But, but, but I think Jackman's character is, is what, maybe Nolan sees himself as to a certain extent, but also worries that he could become. I think he worries about he's, he has this, you know, this through line of obsession, but he worries probably about, about his obsessiveness as I think anyone would. And, and he puts it front and, and center there, but you know, you, you mentioned, you know, that, that last monologue that he has up top Zach. And I think it's the, the second part of that, where he says, Jackman tells Bale, you never understood why we did this. The audience knows the truth. The world is simple. It's miserable, solid all the way through. But if you could fool them even for a second, then you can make them wonder. And then you, then you got to see something really special. You really don't know. It was, it was the look on their faces. And I think that's what, that's Nolan, right? Like that's him kind of speaking using Jackman as that that funnel to to yeah. say this is what it's all about and this is what I'm all about. So that's what, whenever I see this movie I think about that. Yeah, and it's this idea of when does sacrifice go too far and become an unhealthy obsession. And like the movie is very much about the idea of sacrificing ourselves and our individual lives for for our art essentially for something greater that that is for more people and and it's, it's especially poignant now in a time where you see, you know, obviously we don't know like the full story, but you see news reports of, you know, the sacrifice of maybe getting to make a different movie or do something different because he wants to do something on film and he wants to do it on, put it in the theaters. So he may be straining his relationship, but it's important to him to put something in theaters. But then when does that turn into obsession? And we have to put this in theaters, potentially in the middle of a global pandemic. And obviously, again, you don't know who's pushing for what, but we know that he is passionate about putting his movies in theaters. And as like, film goers, I love that. But then you also don't want it to push him to jeopardize, you know, be willing to jeopardize other people's safety. And you hear a little bit, well, I think again, it, it's very, it's uncannily like this, this character because you, you've heard people talk about how, you know, the rumor is the reason he wants to really push Tenet coming out is he wants to be, you know, the, the first, he wants Tenet to be the first movie back in theaters because he thinks it can be like a healing thing for everyone to go for people to go back Save to the theaters. That's his, yeah. yeah, I mean that, and you can, you can think of that as, you know, e egotistical. And I think that's, there, there's an argument there, but, 
it, it seems like there is a, a compassion. I mean, he, he makes movies because he wants people to see them. Like he, he's not a filmmaker who's like, I'm just making this for me because it's my art and nobody understands it. He's like, I want people to see these movies because I want them to, to love them. And, and that's, you know, there's something to that. Yeah, I think there's a difference in just what you two have both said between Nolan wanting to be this healing movie with Tennant coming out of a pandemic versus like a big giant corporation of sports teams that are trying to sell us this lie about coming back and how sports can be a healer when you know at the end of the day that is about the bottom line and the money. But you can tell with the way that Nolan has made his movies and the way that he cares about his movies that whether or not it's true, it's something that he believes in. And that's kind of a nice thought, whether or not it's yeah not worth believing in. <laughs> and it's probably not. And I mean, with him, you have to think in a lot of ways, it's not the bottom line, because I think Warner Brothers, I imagine, is the one worried about the bottom line. Right. And if it's about that, they're not going to release it because they want people to be able, they want to maximize the number of people going to see it. Nolan wants right. to come out because he wants people who, he wants people to see it, but he knows that people are not going to. So Ben, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about how like Nolan kind of feeds two audiences or more at once, that he's one of the few filmmakers working now who does it as well as he does it at least. Are there any other filmmakers uh, that, you, that you think are similar to or analogs to Nolan as a filmmaker, either of you? Uh, I mean, he, he has talked in the past. I mean, he's talked about Kubrick and Ridley Scott both being influences for him. And I, I see a little bit of both of them in what he does. Uh, I see a little Michael Mann. I see a little James Cameron, but I, I think the closest analog in a lot of ways, maybe not necessarily in style, but I think to a certain extent style matters here too, uh, is Steven Spielberg, who, who I think is, you know, the, the kind of quintessential blockbuster entertainer. He is, he is someone who is making movies for, people because he loves making movies and he wants people to see the movies and he he wants to push the limit he want but in a way that is you know not not going so far as to be you know avant-garde or, or something that's going to kind of you know worry about putting people off perhaps um he he wants to push the limit within the scope of kind of mass appeal and spielberg did that really well i even see i think I, I kind I was thinking about the prestige as well. And I think uh, close encounters is, is an interesting kind of analog to the prestige as, as a, as a more personal, you know, story about the filmmaker wrapped up into, to something completely different. But, but, but I, I, those are the two I see as kind of the, the biggest blockbuster guys we've, we've seen. Yeah. I think if you, I, I think I made the mistake of thinking of that question more in like a, a recent times thing of course when you go back to scott and, and kubrick i certainly agree with you ben i know you you i think are a big fan of denis Villeneuve, who we mentioned up up top do you he's someone who i think is often kind of in the conversation with nolan as kind of our big guys making thoughtful blockbusters or whatever do you see any of Villeneuve and in, in nolan or vice versa yeah i i think they've followed similar lines to success starting with these indie stuff uh and then and growing to where they are today i wouldn't put 
him in the same category just yet until we see how Dune does, which <laughs> we, you know, all hope and feel like it'll be the blockbuster it deserves. But I, I mean, Blade Runner, we've talked, we talked before we started recording is an incredible film, but not exactly uh, a moneymaker. And Arrival is one of my favorite movies of all time. But at the same time, I, I don't see those as Nolan level. And that, I feel like that almost comes off as a slight, but it's not. Because with Blade Runner, he's working with this decades old cult classic and kind of updating it for the, the current age. Uh, and Arrival... I can't I can't say anything bad about that movie because it's one of my favorites, <laughs> but it's not it's not like going three levels deep into someone's memory or, you know, even Interstellar goes to space, like in arrival, they come to us. And I feel like Nolan is bigger and broader. But I, I think yeah. once Dune comes out, we can revisit that question a little bit more because that is like the biggest movie yeah. in, mm-hmm. of all time, hopefully. <laughs> I, th- I think Villeneuve's shown like a similar ability to go bigger while not losing the artistic side, but I don't think he has shown the ability to go broader. His movies don't seem, he doesn't seem to care as much about shocking and awing the biggest audience possible. His films still feel fairly niche, almost in a way. Even if they are built for like broad audiences, he doesn't seem to, I don't even want to say compromise as much because I think what Nolan does is what he wants to do. But I think, like, I don't think Villeneuve is growing his audience as rapidly as Nolan did. Arrival aside, I think Villeneuve also is, he, he is still kind of a little more nihilistic than, yeah, than he's Nolan dark. is. Yeah. You talk about yeah. Nolan being cold, which is something I don't really, I still don't really understand. But, but, but Villeneuve is, yeah, it's upsetting. The, the other person I would add, I think Carson covered a couple of people that I had thought of mostly also because I, you know, read that uh, Nolan talked about Ridley as one of his inspirations but the other person that i I thought of is alfred hitchcock i think both of them are masters at building suspense but they also both seem to use ideas and tropes and structures from genre movies without letting their movies necessarily tip over into being genre films i mean obviously hitchcock is known for horror but both of them in particular i think are inspired by film noir but they, neither of them, at least to, I haven't seen every Hitchcock movie, obviously, but like of the movies I've seen, they don't necessarily make full on noirs, but they're able to use, they're both very fluent in film history and those technical aspects of genre movies, but I would not call either of them a genre filmmaker. Uh, and then they also obviously both make extremely technically sound movies that are like for a very broad audience. And that in that sense, I think they they match up well but that's i do think he's uh you know he's mostly in a class by himself yeah and it's interesting that if he's in a class by himself in the modern age and all we can do is come up with spielberg and kubrick and scott to compare him to that's pretty spectacular in its own right all right i i don't have i think really any other hypos per se but i do have a question a a nagging question about this movie and i I'm wondering how the Borden brothers are alternating. So they mentioned switching during their trick at one point, during The Vanishing Man. But 
generally speaking, do you think they've been doing like one day on, one day off, or like a week on, a week off? That is that is something that I think about a lot. This like two people sharing one life, but like exactly how that breaks out. Well, how would you do it? I mean, I'm thinking about it a lot. I have to know that. I think I think the only fair way to do it is you do fair. it every other day, right? Because you can't you if you. Listen, if you, you can't be like, okay, listen, there's something really special going on with this person that I like, so I got to be it today and I'll give you two days later. I think it gets really messy and it's going to get, you're doing it for your whole life. You can't like keep tallies like that. I think it just has to be one day and then the next. And if you miss stuff, you miss stuff and that sucks, but we're both sacrificing. But maybe I thought about this too much. I, I def- you seem like the expert on this and it makes me wonder, you know, if you have a brother, we don't know about it, but I, I, it sounds like you've been aggrieved by the day on day off system that you've worked out and, and it's really informed. It's pretty, you have strong feelings about this, but no, no, I, yeah, I think if you, if you devolve into a negotiation, a bartering system that I think you're right, that gets very messy. Do you think yeah. it's impossible for them to have just both, been doing their own separate lives at the same time and somehow like needing to overlap at points. Is that just out of the question for you guys? I, I, that's a good, that's a good point. I assumed that when one is not Borden, he is like Fallon just kind of hanging around doing Fallon stuff. But. Well, I think that's, what's fascinating, right? Is that usually we see sacrifice as something that's necessary, but it was not at all clear that it was necessary for both of them to play each of them. They could have just been, like one was bearded, one wasn't. They look kind of similar, but you can't really tell. And they each live their own life. And maybe they would have gotten away with it, but they just decided from the get-go, no, we have to both be both people. That gives us the highest chance of success. And, yeah. and what was the get-go? How long do you think they've that been doing this? That is a good this? question. Childhood, for That's sure. Crazy. It feels like a lot of tension could have been avoided if you know one of them was just like, hey, you need to be nicer to my wife she's starting to get pretty upset like you don't have to love her but just like don't don't be a jerk you know but it feels like there wasn't a whole lot of that discourse happening which makes me kind of feel like they they might have been coming together for the shows and then and then separating and living their own lives and then only overlapping when they really had to but it it does take a little bit of liberty in communication there because they both drove these poor women insane when it could have been easily fixable. All right. So is it time to categorize Christopher Nolan as an auteur? I think so. As the guest, you have the privilege of going first, Ben. Of the 10 categories of auteurs, as you understand them, what do you think Christopher Nolan is? And feel free to give us, you know, multiple options that you consider before the big reveal, if you'd like. I think given everything that I've said and even in the comparisons that Carson made just now when we were thinking about uh, adjacent directors, I'm going to go with entertainers because, you know, he's interested in his art, but he really does just want to get it out to everyone and he wants everyone to find their own thing in it and experience it in their own way. If you just want a popcorn blockbuster, you got it. If you want something about high concepts and and time and obsession and family and love and loss, he's got you covered there too. And uh, 
there's a reason why he's so popular today because he does make movies that are hard to object. I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. The only other one I considered was Film Jocks because I do think he's pretty like showy. And I think of the the example of the hallway fight scene in Inception where it's like gravity is, you know, it's like, bro- and, and the, you see a behind the scenes video where he has built this hallway and it's rotating as they're fighting. And he has like built basically kind of an anti-gravity chamber and all for like this very showy scene. But I think... I've started thinking about categorizing people as auteurs as if they made a film that wasn't X, would I be shocked? If he made a film that was not entertaining, I would be blown away. And now I think probably the, the biggest counterpoint might be his early movies, specifically following, which is not quite in that mold. But once you hit, I think now 10 or 11 movies in a row, uh, I think he's I mean, just a straight up entertainer. Definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm on completely the same page. I think it's the only uh, the only thing I even really considered. I, I I could make an argument I think for film jocks or even the writers first category just because of how idea driven all his movies are, um, which I think comes in like the writing process. But you know, it goes back to that that quote we were talking about that Jackman gives at the end of the Prestige. I mean, it's about I think that sums up his whole like thesis of filmmaking and he doesn't he the thing with him is as an entertainer he doesn't take the audience for granted you have some of his films I think Inception falls into this a little bit can be a little explainy but for the most part he trusts that folks want to be challenged a little by their entertainment he doesn't think it needs to be at the lowest common denominator he trusts the audience he knows that they want to be amazed to see something that they haven't seen before. And he's trying to give that to them. And I think that that's why, why he's making films. And I think that the only category that really makes sense is the entertainers. So you brought up writers first. Do we think that Christopher Nolan and his often co-writer, Jonathan Nolan are, are doing a brotherly switch? Do you think like sometimes one directs, sometimes the other writes who has anyone really ever seen Jonathan Nolan? Is it the same, you know, I was a little worried I wasn't going to get this in because I had a blurb written about Jonathan Nolan for uh, another category. But in in terms of this question, I think if Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan were switching, then Westworld wouldn't be such a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Fair. That proves it, I guess. Good proof point, yeah. All right, So, he, but he's an entertainer. We're all, this is probably the, the most unity we've had uh, on anyone and i think that Mm -hmm. makes sense yeah Yeah. all right so it's time for the letterboxd game as a reminder each of us is going to pick one actor or crew member from the film we discussed this week in this case the prestige and the others are going to have to guess that filmmakers uh top three highest rated feature films on letterboxd there's going to be no tv no unreleased movies we will skip the prestige and we're instituting a new rule moving forward which is we will not include any movies from the marvel cinematic universe because it really throws these things out of whack and as always we'll give plenty of hints if the guesser gets stumped all right zach are you ready to kick us off yes okay for you carson and you ben name the top three highest rated movies on letterboxd by christian bale all right fallon not borden that that's the christian bale i'm talking about Okay, so The Prestige won't be on there. 
because we're skipping that. I think the Dark Knight is probably going to be pretty high up, right? Yeah, it's it's got to be just commercial acclaim and artistic nuance. Yeah. People people love it. We're going to go with the Dark Knight. The Dark Knight number 1. Okay. 4.4. 4. Good movie. Now, yeah. Carson, you gave it 5 stars. Mhm. Yeah. Ben, you gave it 4 stars. I'm going to rewatch it again. <laughs> I I know I'm a hater. Was a hater. I'm reformed. It's okay to be a hater. <laughs> yeah, four stars for a movie based on a character you don't like. I mean, that's basically that's like five stars. So pretty good. That's a good point. Yeah. An automatic. Yeah. Then uh, next, maybe the fighter. Right, fighter's going to be out there. I was thinking about that. You've got he's in the fighter and American Hustle, and I think the fighter will probably be higher. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm pretty. Yeah, we could guess. We could just go ahead and guess the fighter. Yeah. The, fighter the fighter is higher than American Hustle. It is not in the top three. Oh, no. It is number seven of eligible films. With what rating? And it has a 3.7. So okay. I got a lot of distance between that and The Dark Knight. All right. Well, you've got like Vice, um, oh. which I don't think is probably Letterbox no. loved. Yeah. I don't want to give a hint, but please don't guess Vice. Uh, um, <laughs> I know you're better than that. Um, let's see. You've got like Equilibrium won't be up there. Little Women, the uh, the one from the 90s. Empire of the Sun, the Spielberg movie. What oh. is Bale's other? Bale has been in like another. Like, like a fighty movie. Blockbuster yeah. that I totally am blanking on. Ford versus Ferrari. Oh, that's actually not a bad. That's not a bad guess at all. That's not bad. We could guess that. Yeah, I don't have any other leads currently. Ford v Ferrari. Wow, number three. I did not think you'd get that. I don't think. I don't think I. I would have guessed that that was rated so high. However, as I click into it, Ford v Ferrari number three eligible. Three point eight. Mm. So only Ooh. only point one above the number seven eligible. So it, there's a big drop after after the Dark Knight. All right, so there's one more eligible. Oh, oh, it must be American Psycho. Oh. Hmm. Right? Yeah. May- yeah. Yeah. American That's like Psycho. That's thing. Yeah. Yeah. 3.9, number two, or okay. number two eligible. So the overall number two movie is The Prestige at 4.1. Mm. So it's two, it's mm. two Nolans up top, followed by, you guys did a, a really good job, I think. Um, Once we got through the silly stuff. <laughs> you had your you had your phase, but you also never mentioned the big short. Oh yeah. Oh. I, I don't was, like that movie. And he I was nominated for it. it you mentioned Vice, the worst yeah. Adam McKay movie. That's fair. Okay. I've been informed that I'm going second. All right. And now that I know how the game works, we're going with Scarlett Johansson. All right. So I think her might be up there. Yeah, yeah. We talked about her at one point on an earlier episode. Good pull. Yeah, let's go with her. That, that is the number one movie, a 4.1 right. on Letterboxd. 4.1. And wow. uh, right. Zach, you gave it five stars, and Carson gave it a four and a half. I, of course, it gave it a five. So we all love it, too. Yeah, good movie. Yeah, great movie. Yeah, that's a great movie. Okay. Right. Now, now this gets very difficult. <laughs> yes, because we know it's not the prestige or any of the MCU movies. 
Right. That really rules out a good chunk of her her filmography. Um, The Man Who Wasn't There, the Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. I was shocked when she showed up. Yeah. That's the only reason I remember. That's a good, that's a good one. I don't think Uh, it's one of the highest rated Coen Brothers though. I think it's a sneaky like film bro movie though that people Um, like. So it's like, it's like an underrated Coen um vicky christina barcelona Ooh, i oh, put wa- that over lost in translation yes it is stupid that we didn't say that yet good yeah. point lost in translation yeah no whoa <laughs> this 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 is i will i will say i don't know if this is allowed you can you can cut it out it is on rotten tomatoes yeah, not we're, on letterbox we're only doing so, letterboxd right well Okay. All right. So what? What's, what what's is score on Letterbox? It's like pretty far down the list. It has a rating of a three point nine on Letterbox, and it's pretty far down. Damn. Granted, we went off the list of Marvel movies that are are in the way, but it's it's not terribly high. There's got to be other stuff we're missing. Marriage Story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think we should guess that. I bet that marriage. was like 4.0 or 3.9. Yeah, Marriage Story. Correct. That is the number two movie. And it has a 4.1 mm, okay. on the okay. box. Is she in a Wes Anderson that people like? She's in Jojo Rabbit, which feels like a Wes Anderson movie sometimes. It's true. <laughs> She's in Hail Caesar. Yeah, I think man who isn't man who wasn't there is going to be higher than Hail yeah. Caesar. She's in Under the Skin, which oh love. That's a good guess. I, I really like it. I didn't see it, but I know people really like that. Let's guess but that. I really, really like it. Let's guess that. Yeah. Okay, Under the Skin. Incorrect. Damn. Ah. All right. Okay. So so we have one left. We've gotten a couple wrong. So what are all of our scores here? for the number three movie the number three movie i gave it four stars zach you gave it three and a half okay and carson i do not see a score does it say i've watched it yes oh shoot so you saw it before you got a letterboxd presumably did you give Mm -hmm. i thought it was going to be jojo rabbit maybe because i think i gave that three and a half yeah but i i go back and rate pretty much everything i think i've rated almost every movie i've ever seen so quite a a mystery (laughs) oh could it be we bought a zoo (laughs) seems unlikely all right we we need another hint yeah a couple other people in the movie we'll go with uh greta gerwig and tilda swinton Ooh. Mm. That to me sounds like maybe a, a Wes Anderson, but one we haven't named yet. Is she in the room? And Swinton is in it. Is it oh, a yeah. It's a voice performance. I was going to say, is it a voice performance? I think it's Isle of Dogs. Oh. I mean, I guess yeah, it could I, be Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I don't think she's in it. And I didn't rate that because I walked out. Yes, that makes sense. Yes, it's definitely that. I marked Damn it as it. watched, but Why I, wa- do you do I walked this? out. 
<laughs> Isle of Dogs. Right, it's definitely that. It is indeed Isle of Dogs. <laughs> we should have put more thought into why you wouldn't rate a movie. You're <laughs> yeah. very diligent about your rating. You really should have. That would have been the giveaway. Darn. Carson said, for what it's worth, I really enjoyed the score. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. All right. The two of you are going to be doing Hugh Jackman. Greatest showman. Um, number one, number two, and number three. So we're not doing MCU, but we are doing, like, theoretically, X-Men movies would count. Because yes, I would correct. guess Logan. It's definitely I, Logan. I feel like I'm fine just guessing that. Yeah. Yes. Logan. Uh, Logan is going to be number two oh, of boy. eligible movies with a 4.0. And two 4.0, okay. And of course, we already we already know that the Prestige has a 4.1, but we will not yeah. be counting that. So, Ben, I so I haven't seen many of the X Men movies. Do you think there'd be one rated higher than Logan? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Definitely cool. not. That was my impression, which is part of why I never <laughs> saw any of them. But... Yeah, no, you're not incorrect there. Lay Miz is like people are torn uh, on that, right? I think I would I would still guess it though. Okay. Because otherwise we're like talking about real steel. I mean, it's just <laughs> if it's just people in this conversation writing it, maybe. Uh, uh, yeah, no, yeah. Lamez is not in the top three. It's a three point five. It's going to be one sixth of eligible films. He's oh, D- Bad Education, which just came out, is very good. I rated I've, it high. Not, I've not seen that one. It's on my list. So I'll, I'll defer to you if you want to guess it. I feel like it's high threes, though. I, I don't think it would be. Number two was 4.0. So there's one higher than that. Yeah. He is... He's like a little bit of a blind spot for me. Yeah. I will say I'm pretty oh. much discounting cameos because there's one that's like I guess would technically be the third movie here, but it's a cameo that I like don't that he's like it's like a voice cameo. Yeah. So point I'm kind of discounting those. Okay. What about prisoners, Ben? Hmm. I feel like that could be. Yeah, let's do it. I could be wrong. Prisoners. Prisoners number one. Oh with a four point one. All right. Wow. Okay. That movie was a that movie was like a wide release movie. That was just right. like super bleak. So yeah. we got we've gotten at least one wrong. So can you give us our ratings for number three? Yes. Uh, Zach, you gave this a four and a half, and Ben, you have not rated it. Yeah, that would have been my guess. <laughs> a four and a half though for Zach. Okay, then that must be bad education, because I gave that four and a half, and and you haven't seen it, right? Yeah. 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 Okay checks out that's that's helpful is bad education it is bad education <laughs> with a 3.7 right. yeah Rushed apparently it. he's in me earl and the dying girl oh um, wow i did some research it looks like he voices like the kid has a wolverine poster in his room that talks to him and jackman does <laughs> the voice i don't know i skipped it um also i hate that movie so yeah that movie i i didn't like that movie book was better I feel like they must have, like, because that was a tiny little movie. I feel like they must have, like, screened it at Sundance. It blew up, and then they got him to dub in voice. I, want, I do wonder that. All right, so that's a, that's a wrap on 
this week's episode on Christopher Nolan and The Prestige. Take a look at roughcutscinema.com for all your further Christopher Nolan content wrapping up July. And uh, until next time, thank you, Ben, for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening.